Last time, we spoke about how Lieutenant General Anami attempted to capture Chang Sha for a third time. It seemed to be successful, at least for now. We then talked about the continued disaster that was the withdrawal to Batan by the forces of Douglas MacArthur. MacArthur had blundered up War Plan Orange 3, leaving his troops scattered all around the Philippines with all the vital war equipment that they would need in Bataan. In the end, while they should have had six months worth of supplies to hold Bataan, they would only be left with around 30 days worth. Last, we talked about the major stand at Kampar and how Yamashita made a bold three-pronged attack to push back the defenders. Well, today, we're going to return to all of these stories, particularly about the defenders in Malaya, who will make another stand at Salim River. Welcome back to the Pacific War Podcast week by week, and I'm your dutiful host, Craig Watson. But before we can start, I just want to remind you that this podcast is only made possible through the efforts of kings and generals over at YouTube. Perhaps you want to learn a bit more about World War II? Kings and Generals has an assortment of episodes on World War II and other historical events, so go give them a look over on YouTube. So please subscribe to Kings and Generals over at YouTube and continue to help us produce this content by checking out www.patreon.com slash kingsandgenerals. And if after all that you are still hungry for some history content, why don't you go check out my personal channel, the Pacific War Channel, over at YouTube, where you can find a few episodes like the Opium Wars of the 1800s, or maybe some episodes of the Pacific War, like my episode on the Battle of Hong Kong. Check it out, it'll mean a lot to me. Now for the Japanese, the entire war was going exceedingly well for the first few weeks. Lieutenant General Anami, as we last spoke, had sort of gone rogue and decided to take his force and attack Changsha. Yet General Anami's forces were originally intended to prevent Chinese forces from reinforcing the defenders engaged in Hong Kong. But what ended up happening was Anami became furious about Chinese claims of his failure to take Changsha during the Second Battle of Changsha that had taken place in September to October of 1941. Thus he took his force and began another attack upon Changsha. He was supposed to be supporting the 23rd Army's attack on Hong Kong, maneuvering south of Hankou but he disobeyed orders, and thus the Third Battle of Changsha was born. By January the 4th of 1942, Anami's force managed to get within the city and held off a major Chinese counterattack on January the 1st. General Zhu Yu had set up artillery pieces on the Yulu mountain range which overlooks the city of Changsha, and he began heavy bombardments upon the city. By January the 4th, a ton of reinforcements arrived from the 9th War area to help repel the invaders at Changsha. Nine Chinese armies, broken into 20 divisions, would now swarm into Changsha, supported by heavy artillery. The Japanese 11th Army's air reconnaissance saw the impending horde 
and notified the force immediately to their shock and horror. Anami could not believe the situation. The city initially was thought to be inadequately defended. His forces had taken all the important points of the city, but now it seemed like he was in some kind of mousetrap. This mousetrap became known as Zhu Yu's Heavenly Furnace. The idea behind the trap was that, quote, Anami realized the jeopardy he was now in and begrudgingly settled orders for his entire force to retreat, or else they would face encirclement. Part of the Japanese 11th Army was the 40th Division, which was left in the rear, but soon it was besieged by the 37th and 78th Chinese armies, who were soon going to break through. The 40th Division were beginning to be encircled. They were no longer able to hold their position, so they had to turn around and flee. But this left behind the 3rd and 6th Division, who were further out. The 3rd and 6th Division were now in an extremely dangerous position, and they had to quickly flee as well. So they began to approach the Liaoyang Ho River at Langjixi, and eventually assembled on the northern bank of the river. To cover their withdrawal, Anami ordered the 40th Division, who had fled, to now advance on Chuehashan, while the 9th Brigade would capture the town of Malinxi. By holding these two locations, he hoped it would give enough time for the 3rd and 6th Division to retreat over the river. There was a two-day bloody battle at the river, but the 6th Division was eventually able to cross and make its way towards Malanxi. The 3rd Division, however, was blocked by Chinese forces when they arrived at Yixiechang. The 3rd Division would take heavy losses trying to cross the river under enemy fire and only got past to the northern bank by midnight of January the 5th. Meanwhile, the 40th Division at Chunhuishan had managed to rout a small Chinese force and began to move further west to divert attention of the nearby 78th Chinese Army. The 9th Brigade now pushed on to a town called Fulimpu, where they attacked the Chinese 20th and 58th Armies, taking the town and the mountain range. For the next few days, the 9th Brigade would be harassed relentlessly by Chinese forces trying to dislodge them, but they managed to hold quite firmly. The rest of the retreating Japanese forces now managed to get to Malanxi by January the 7th, which allowed the 40th Division to begin its own withdrawal. From Malanxi to Fulimpu, the 3rd Division was covered by the 40th and 6th advancing to Li Chao. On January the 8th, the Chinese 73rd and 99th attacked the 6th Division. Anami realized he could lose the entire division and ordered his other forces to stop their retreat and support the 6th as it tried to escape towards Fulimpu. Some of you must be picturing in your head how absolutely frustrating this must have been for the Japanese. Imagine you're trying to pull back all these different divisions and each one you pull back is under threat of more Chinese attack so you have to pull in other divisions to come back in to try and protect them as they came back in and those guys that you sent in are now, oh look at it, they're all encircled. Yes, frustrating to say the least. By January the 9th, all of the Japanese forces were now falling back from the Changsha area while multiple groups were ambushed trying to cross the Liaoyang River. 
The 6th Division finally managed to make a break for it for Fulimpu by January the 10th, reuniting with the 3rd, and they both began to march together north towards Mount Peofungshan. By January the 13th, the entire 11th Army had regrouped on the right bank of the Kushui River, and by January the 15th, they had completed their withdrawal from the Changsha area, marking the end of the Third Battle of Changsha. The Third Battle of Changsha is what we might call in English a clusterfuck of an operation. Lieutenant General Anami had disobeyed orders and allowed the 11th Army to be lured into a giant trap in which they were almost encircled and annihilated. After the battle, the Japanese claimed that 1,591 of their men had been killed and there was about 4,000 wounded, while they had killed over 28,000 Chinese and captured 1,000. The Chinese claimed they had killed over 52,000 Japanese. It's often uneasy to get an accurate count from the Second Sino-Japanese War, but I would imagine the true numbers are somewhere in the middle, and I would lean quite heavily more towards the Chinese figures, but my god, not 52,000. And you know what, the Japanese really did get caught in a terrible trap. And do remember, for almost all of human history, most of the casualties incurred upon an army is when they are fleeing a battle. And the Japanese were fleeing this battle the entire time, so you could argue the number must have been quite high. Needless to say, this was a complete catastrophe for the Japanese. It was the first major offensive in China since Japan began war on the West. It was also the first major defeat the Japanese army would encounter since the war began on the West. A major reason for the catastrophe was that the Chinese had been destroying all the roads leading into Changsha, which greatly hindered the heavy artillery pieces and the Japanese tanks, thus allowing many of the IGA infantry to enter into a killing box. American reporter Foreman visited the battlefield and wrote, China's third victory in Changsha proved the principle that if the Chinese army is equipped enough they can easily defeat the Japanese army. Well, there seemed to be some hope blooming for China. Meanwhile, back in the Philippines, we said last time that the defenders had finally made it to the Bataan Peninsula. They were supposed to have enough supplies to survive something like six months, but because of Douglas MacArthur's fumbling of Warplan Orange 3's initiation, they would only have enough supplies for around 30 days or so. So Douglas MacArthur's forces dug in behind the Abacate-Moban line, which cut across the northern end of the peninsula and across the flank of an extinct volcano known as Mount Natib. As General Homa's forces approached the mouth of the Bataan Peninsula, this would mark the commencement of the Battle of Bataan. MacArthur assigned Wainwright to the western half of the Bataan defenses. Wainwright's men were in no shape for immediate combat after their chaotic and heroic fight for the Lingian Gulf, delaying the Japanese to protect all the forces running for their lives to get to Bataan took a toll on them. Nonetheless, Wainwright was given command of the 1st Corps, which held four divisions and a regiment of the Philippine scouts. His line stretched from Mauban, on the coast to the range of Mount Silangangnang. 
It seemed obvious the Japanese would commence by attacking the eastern side down the coastal highway, and in this sector, Douglas MacArthur had given command to Major General George Parker. George Parker would have 25,000 men of the 2nd Corps, consisting of four divisions and also a regiment of the Philippine Scouts, units who had all escaped the South with relative ease, and thus they were a bit more fresh than the men on the western side. His defensive line extended from Mount Natib's foothills all the way to Ma Batang on the Manila Bay, just in front of Abake. The east coast was flat and swampy, with rice paddies and fish ponds extending inland for around two miles. Many of the frontline troops were elite Filipino units, determined to redeem the poor performance of their countrymen during the fight for Lingian Gulf. MacArthur's strategy was to conduct a defense in depth, taking full advantage of the tough and rugged terrain. He had established entrenched defensive positions at the jungles and mountain ranges. In the very center of the defensive line was a huge gap that was Mount Natib, which was thought to be impassable by American commanders at the time. That would prove to be an egregious mistake, because the defensive forces were on either side of this gap and did not have a direct contact with another. What happens if the Japanese actually go through the gap? Think of the Maginot Line situation in France, when the Germans had a large force rampaging through Belgium, and the French and British had sent the literal kitchen sink to go meet them for a decisive battle. Well, they thought the Maginot Line would hold back the Germans. They decided to attack there. Thus, they had two major lines of defense, but between them was the Ardennes Forest, a terrain deemed impassable by commanders at the time. So you see where I'm going with all of this. MacArthur had also formed a rear battle position that stretched back from Bagak to Orion across the peninsula. This was to be the last line of defense for Bataan. By this point in the campaign, MacArthur had lost around 13,000 men, while Homa had lost only 2,000. But Homa was dealt a rather significant blow by his own people. As we had mentioned previously in the last episode, Homa's most elite crack division, the 48th, were redirected for the upcoming attack on the Dutch East Indies. This has been characterized somewhat as a mistake on the part of the Japanese commanders. They made a underestimation of the strengths and defenses of Bataan and that of Corregidor, but it also could have been tactically astute. Japanese senior commanders most likely decided that they could afford to ignore MacArthur's forces holed up in Bataan. They would literally just be left to wither on the vine, so to say. The Dutch East Indies, however, with its wealth of oil, was a strategic prize for the Japanese southern campaign, really the entire reason for this war being fought. Nonetheless, the 48th were replaced with the 65th Summer Brigade from Formosa. This was an occupational force of 7,700, composed mostly of older men who were unprepared and unequipped for frontline duty, i.e., they were a garrison force. Now something of interest happens in the background here. 
On January the 13th, Emperor Hirohito was eagerly following the campaign developments while ensconced in the war room built underneath his imperial palace, when he made his first direct intervention in the running of the war. While the war advances were thus far running like clockwork, he pressed General Sugiyama, the army chief of staff, to reinforce the troops on the Philippines so as to speed up the taking of Bataan. A week later, Hirohito would press Sugiyama again for reinforcements, although Sugiyama pointed out that with the U.S. Army bottled up in Bataan, it posed no real danger. Nonetheless, Sugiyama assured the emperor that fresh troops would be sought out. Hirohito would ask yet again on the 9th and the 26th of February. I bring this up again because to the contrary to the post-war assertion that Hirohito was a constitutional monarch who had no, quote, real day-to-day -day role in the running of the war, thereby excusing him from something like the Tokyo war crimes trials, the emperor was actively involved in discussion and the approval of all strategic war plans. Just yet again, something I'd like all of you to keep in mind, because a lot of this information has only been made public rather recently. On January the 9th, Japanese forces under Lieutenant General Susumu Moriaka began probing attacks on the eastern end of the Abake Line, which soon escalated into heavy fighting. The defenders fought tenaciously and repulsed the first attacks, and the Filipino troops showed remarkable valor. On the western Moban Line, however, in the ensuing days, despite ferocious counterattacks made by the 51st Philippine Division, the Japanese managed to open a breach in the defensive positions. On January the 12th, amidst the intense fighting, one 2nd Lieutenant Alexander Nininger, a platoon leader of the 57th Infantry, sacrificed his own life armed only with his rifle and hand grenades as he forced his way into Japanese foxholes during some gruesome hand-to-hand -hand combat. He was able to get his unit to retake the Abake Hacienda, which was a fortified position on the Abake line. He posthumously was awarded the Medal of Honor for this. Another extreme act of valor was made by a Filipino man named Narciso Ortilano. He had been using water to cool down his heavy machine gun when suddenly, the Japanese burst out of a grass thicket into a bonsai charge right at him. He shot dozens of them down with his machine gun before pulling out his Colt .45 revolver and shooting five more after his machine gun had jammed up on him. One of the bonsai chargers tried to bayonet him as Narciso frantically grabbed at the gun and got his thumb cut off in the process, but he managed to hold onto it. He swung the gun around on the Japanese soldier and stabbed him in the chest with the bayonet. Then another Japanese soldier tried to bayonet him, and yet again he turned the soldier's rifle back on him and shot him dead. Narciso received the Distinguished Service Cross for his actions, and I would personally call this guy the Rambo of Bataan. The battle for the Abacate Malban line had only just begun, but we have to wait until next week to hear more about the men who will soon become known as the Battling Bastards of Bataan. 
Now, we're going to have to go back to the Malayan Peninsula where General Paris has established a new line of defense at the Slim River. This river lies about 50 miles north of Kuala Lumpur. The source of the river is beyond the mountain resort of Fraser's Hill, from where it goes westward to the coast, and its estuary being at the little port city of Melantang. It has a great anti-tank obstacle. Its waters are rarely less than 200 yards across. Yet the defenders did not have enough troops to be stationed along its total length. Thus the defenders decided that the next delaying action would have to be fought at the bottleneck around 9 miles north of the Slim River. Just north of the river lied the village of Trolak, and 10 miles south of the river lied the market town of Tanjong Malim. On the Slim River was a rail bridge, and Paris expected to hold a bottleneck north of the river using only three brigades. He placed Stuart's 12th Brigade at the front in a green tunnel that was quite narrow at Trollac. The battered 28th Brigade was placed straddling the road and the railway on the northern bank of the river, and the 15th Brigade was appointed to cover the rear at Tanjong Malim. It was a fairly sound execution of a defense in depth. Stuart deployed his three battalions also in depth, one on the narrow front, with another behind it. However, the frontal battalion's commanding officer, Lieutenant Colonel Wilson Haffeden, had been wounded by an air attack within mere hours of taking up their positions. Haffeden was one of a steady trickle of casualties from the insistent daytime harassment the defenders got from Japanese fighters and light bombers. The Japanese pilots knew the defenders would concentrate themselves on the narrow stretch of roads and could continue to attack them with impunity because, apart from the shoulder-held Bren guns, there was really little in the ways of anti-aircraft guns. The frontal battalion's role was thus to act as a tripwire, alerting the rest of the brigade to any full-scale attack and to delay the Japanese as long as possible. A major problem was that the defenders had failed to set up as much artillery as available to them as they could because they thought the terrain did not allow for a good line of sight. Thus, they end up setting up eight artillery pieces that could fire 25-pound shells but left over 16 other artillery pieces in the other battalion behind them. The thought process being that they could easily be moved behind the river when the withdrawal orders were eventually made. The 25-pounder shells were primarily intended to cover large areas with high explosive and shrapnel from quite a distance, and they proved to be very effective against German tanks early on in World War II, and thus the men should have known it would have been of an enormous value to them to be used at the front. Alongside this, the frontal battalion's defenses were poorly constructed with virtually no mines nor anti-tank guns to cover the defensive lines, despite the availability of both. In fact, the battalion just behind them had set up anti-tank guns, anti-tank mines, and quite a lot of barbed wire to hinder tanks from incoming. Also, by this stage of the campaign, there was a shortage of something called the boys' anti-tank rifle. It was a particularly heavy rifle, and a lot of the troops ended up just dumping them when retreating when no vehicles were present to carry them. You probably often hear me during the entire Malayan campaign just simply state, 
they retreat and they lost a lot of equipment. But you have to really take that into account. It's not like the equipment is just sitting there. The Japanese take it and use it themselves. Also, a lot of this equipment was particularly useful against what was coming at them. Point in case, the boys' anti-tank rifles were actually quite devastating against Japanese tanks. And it's honestly very stupid that they would drop these guns, so needlessly. But then again, in the heat of the moment while retreating, I don't think you can think about such things. Less than 24 hours before the mayhem would begin, Stuart received his first indication that they were going to be facing what sounded like the largest armored attack of the campaign to that point. A Tamil laborer who had apparently wandered through their defensive lines, and fortunately not shot by accident, might I add, brought the Brigade HQ a story. At this point, the British were becoming quite suspicious of the native population, after acquiring on various occasions intel that proved to be false. Well, this man told them that he had seen no less than 80 tanks in a village near their position. But as he continued to describe what he saw, he stated that the vehicles he saw had wheels. The British HQ all sighed in relief, because of course tanks do not have wheels. They had what is called a visible row of sprockets, or bogey wheels, behind their tracks. The Japanese Type 95 tank had six bogey wheels on either side. The British commanders deduced that the Tamil informant had never been shown a picture or a sketch of a Japanese tank before, and he had probably been mistaking something like trucks as tanks. So basically, they were treating the man like a country bumpkin who had no idea what he was looking at and they didn't heed what he was saying. Everyone was exhausted by the constant round of moving, fighting, running, and with the constant aerial attacks along the roads, the men were only able to build up defenses during the nighttime because of all of this. The men, quite frankly, were underfed, unwashed, unslept, and many had had enough. In the morning, the Japanese began to probe the railway line but the defenders repulsed them with heavy artillery. Around 60 dead Japanese were spread across the tracks, and the rest of the day was quite quiet afterwards. Stuart's men at the front were so exhausted that there was little to do than to withdraw them for a good 48 hours so they could just eat, sleep, and be restored to some fighting spirit. Paris told Stuart he would send reinforcements from the Divisional Reserve to take up their positions just south of Trollach Village. Around 90 minutes after the reinforcements arrived, the Japanese attacked. Now, night tank attacks rarely occurred in World War II. Not so much in Russia, where the largest armored battles took place. Not even in North Africa, where the innovative Rommel used his panzer regiments with incredible cunning. Simply put, many drew the line at blundering about with tanks in the dark. Once a tank hatch was put down, it was difficult enough to see clearly in daylight. Honestly, this would be the case for most history until night vision was created. But then we have a Japanese tank commander named Major Hajime Shimada and he did not show up with 80 tanks, as the Tamil laborer had suggested, but there were perhaps 30 T-95s with another 10 two-man light tanks. A formidable force, to be sure. 
Accompanying this force were trucks full of infantry. Major Shimada had persuaded his commanders to allow his tanks to spearhead the first wave of a night attack. Having had some disastrous time at Kampar, the commanders probably thought it was time to try something different, so they allowed the crazy plan. Shimada himself had known it was a large risk advancing on a front as narrow as a single road, and it would be all too easy for artillery to decimate such a force. By 3am of January the 7th, it was raining heavily. The defenders were in their foxholes on either side of the jungle road cutting north of Trollok village. Then at dusk, they heard an exchange of fire. It seemed the Japanese were trying to locate their positions. Then at 3.30am, the first motors and artillery shells began to fire. Fifteen minutes later, Japanese infantry were merely 300 yards away from the most frontal defenders, trying to get over some barbed wire and other barriers. Then at 4 a.m., the tanks came rushing in. Everyone could hear them long before they could ever see them. They came down the road with their machine guns spitting yellow tracers in all directions, followed up by trucks full of infantry. One of the defenders' anti-tank guns in the most frontal position never even fired a shot, and it's unclear if its four-man crew had died or had simply fled the scene. As the tank's yellow tracer rounds scattered about in all directions, it's not hard to imagine each defender believed every round was personally aimed at him. They all began to turn and retreat, and soon the force was going into a rout. There was a large-scale panic until 4.30 a.m., when one of Shimada's T-95s went over an anti-tank mine. The tank directly behind it tried to get past, and then it was shot by a boy's anti-tank rifle. The Punjab defenders were on some high grounds to the sides of the road with a perfect position to look down upon the tanks, and they were able to rain down some hell in a rather unique way. While the defenders had limited anti-tank weapons, they did have an old-fashioned and test-proven weapon available to them, Molotov cocktails. They began to lob them at the tanks. And if anyone's listening and they know about the Winter War, Talvisota, between Finland and the Soviets, lest it be said, Molotov cocktails can be a nasty weapon against tanks. They get into your ventilation, smoke the men out, and cause havoc. Well, Shimada's worst nightmare had just come true, and now it was the Japanese who turned and panicked. His armored column was stuck, and the defender's artillery could now unleash hell upon them. They were even illuminated by the Molotov's fire to boot. As was often the case with the Japanese, their immediate response was to make a ton of noise to frighten the enemy away. They bellowed as they tried to shoot motors to keep the defenders at a distance, but for the tanks, they were stuck and their guns could not aim properly at the level the defenders were. The Japanese tanks were not outfitted with radios, and their commanders began to open up hatches to yell orders as the Punjab defenders saw this? Well, they began to toss grenades. Ironically, all the Molotov cocktail fire had illuminated some paths for the tanks to move through, and incredibly, Shimada's force was able to make a breakaway. The golden opportunity to destroy his entire column of tanks was lost. It seems that those reinforcements that had just arrived just prior to the battle starting 
had not done their job properly. They did not telephone cable the tank's position to the artillery to strike them down. By 6 a.m., most of the Japanese tanks had moved on, mopping up infantry as they went around. Yet the Japanese did not seem to have learnt their lesson, as the leading tanks came to yet another halt when an anti-tank mine went off. Again, Molotov cocktails were lobbed at them, but this time the tanks were in the vicinity of the 12th Brigade, and they had two anti-tank guns. Each gun began to fire, and soon one tank was destroyed. But after that, the guns had gone silent, possibly because they were already being pulled back. It seems their gun crews were unnerved by the sight of the Japanese infantry storming them, and they decided to fall back. Shortly after 7am, all organized resistance simply fell apart, and the defenders began to flee to the Trollak area. Over in the middle sector, the defenders there began to see fleeing men before them, and many ran right past them. One Captain Kenneth McLeod recalled trying to stop some fleeing men, stating, Turban soldiers ducked around me and under my arms as I stood there like a traffic officer to whom no one pays any attention. It soon became apparent they were running from a tank attack. Roadblocks were hastily improvised as the commanders tried to set up charges to blow up the Trollak Bridge. Then, the first four tanks appeared, using the remaining half hour or so of darkness to their advantage. The tanks rolled over the first wave of roadblocks with ease, but the second ones had some armored cars and boys' anti-tank rifles handy. As they fired at the tanks, one was set on fire externally by a Molotov cocktail, and was immobilized by a shot from a boy's rifle. The armored cars were hit by tank shells and immobilized themselves. The defenders heroically pushed the armored cars to the southern end of the Trollock Bridge to buy more time before blowing it up. The bridge would be blown up around 6.30 p.m., but unfortunately for the fleeing defenders, many of the Japanese had simply gone around the sector, bypassing the bridge, and were now trying to encircle them before they could get back to Slim River. The Japanese made ambush attacks with their tanks along the roadways, forcing many of the defenders to flee into the jungles to find terrain impassable for tanks to follow. Second Lieutenant Ian Primrose was knocked unconscious during an ambush, and when he came about, he discovered the Japanese were taking prisoners and dividing the wounded defenders. Those who could walk were told to march under guards, and those who could not walk were shot or bayoneted. Primrose said as he and the other wounded British walked away from the scene, they heard gunshots and realized what was happening with mounting horror. He recalled this moment, stating, Everybody had heard the stories about Japanese atrocities in China, but that was Asians dealing with Asians. We never expected this sort of thing to happen to us. Afterwards, the surviving prisoners were made to dig graves for the newly murdered, and then they were to help carry the wounded Japanese. Primrose had to help carry a Japanese officer he had shot twice himself. Luckily for him, the man died before he could tell his comrades that his assailant 
was the guy carrying him. They all marched towards Slim River, columns of tanks, trucks, infantry, and prisoners. The T-95s, having broken through the defender's crust, were now wrecking havoc everywhere. En route to the south of Trolloc were some reinforcements from Paris. They had vehicles with them carrying ammunition and heavy weapons. As they made their approach, Shimada's vanguard of three tanks commanded by 2nd Lieutenant Sadanobu Watanabe saw the approaching vehicles and unleashed absolute hell upon them. It was an absolute massacre. Before the defenders even knew what had happened, Watanabe shot his 37mm cannon to destroy a car and opened up his machine gun on the marching defenders. The first two companies of around 250 men were virtually wiped out. The other company's men simply fled into the jungles. Watanabe pushed on like it was a cavalry charge. Closer to Slim River was a Gurkha brigade, and at 8.30, Watanabe's tanks emerged shooting up every tent and vehicle in their HQ area. The Gurkhas were in a bad position, as they only had a few anti-tank rifles with them at that point. The T-95s turned up just as Captain Tom Mooney, a regular officer, was crossing a road. Instead of running for cover, Mooney drew his .455 revolver, stood his ground, and fired upon the tanks until he was shot dead. Mooney's suicidal stand summed up the plight of the Defender's HQ. The only weapons on hand that could do damage to the tanks were a few mortars. Watanabe's main objective was to rush the Slim River Road Bridge. If he could capture that, the best part of the British division would all be bottled up. The tanks moved on, and for a second time, Watanabe found a band of marching infantry with their backs turned to them. It was another Gurkha force. Many of them were teenagers, and thus they were marching to a quiet sector on the eastern flank. The defenders were marching in two long columns in single file on either side of the road, trying to keep less visible from the air. Then a puzzling sound of battle came from the direction of the HQ they had just departed. Major Winkfield, the second in command of the force, recalled, True, the battle sounded a bit close, but we were miles behind the front, and there was no air about. The men behind were looking back and hurrying. They kept pressing forward. The next thing I knew, a machine gun blazed in my ear. A bullet grazed my leg and I dived into a ditch as a tank bore down on me. It had passed through half my battalion without my realizing that anything was amiss. It was soon all over. The death toll was enormous. Survivors fled into the jungles. The commander of the force, Colonel Fulton, had been wounded in the stomach and thigh, unable to move. Close by him lay the body of his orderly, whose own injuries had left him in so much pain that the man had shot himself. Fulton would die two months later in Japanese captivity. Watanabe pressed on further, shooting at the defenders trying to fire back from the jungles. Ten miles south of the Slim River Road Bridge, at his divisional HQ at Tangjong Malim, Archibald Paris had no idea how fast his brigades were beginning to crumble away. All he knew was that 
two hours after the Japanese had launched their surprise night tank attack, all intel began to dry up. Now people were beginning to turn up to his HQ with reports of the enemy breaking through. Paris sent Lieutenant Colonel Arthur Harrison, the division's chief of staff, to investigate. Harrison and his Indian orderly, Mustafa Ghulam, drove north in a Ford V8. And as they were driving along, they approached a British armored car, except it appeared to have tracks and a big gun. Harrison recalled of this moment. The next thing I knew was a deafening volley as machine gun bullets shattered my windscreen. I wrenched the wheel hard to starboard, crashing into a ditch, opened the door, leapt out, and ran like hell for 50 yards of open ground to some flimsy security of some scattered rubber. Gollum showed up right behind him, holding a wounded shoulder, stating in bewilderment, Are those our armored cars, Sahib? Watanabe was charging down the road, and he saw in the distance a motorcyclist. This was Lieutenant Colonel Charles Holm, the commander of the 137th Field Regiment. Holm was not as lucky as Harrison, and he was gunned down. Watanabe then suddenly came to the bridge, and the only defenders present were Bofar's gunners of Singapore and some Hong Kong artillerymen. They fired their anti-tank guns, but these guns were outfitted with airburst ammunition, and the rounds exploded harmlessly against the T-95's armor. Upon seeing this, the gunner fled while Watanabe began to cut the wires to the demolition charges that were set up on the bridge. Watanabe had sustained some injuries at this point, and he stayed on the bridge, allowing Ensign Toichiro Seito to lead a troop of three tanks on a reconnaissance mission south of the river towards Tangjong Malim. Seito was driving along the road when he came across a motorcycle. It was Colonel Augustus Murdoch. Murdoch spotted the tanks and pretty quickly turned back to a defensive position that had some howitzers. Seto chased after him and his machine gunner, Sergeant Matsutaro Higashitsatsumi, took careful aim at Murdoch's back and killed him in a single burst of his machine gun. Murdoch's death would not be in vain, however, as the defensive position he was driving to was alerted by the gunshots and they began to open fire upon the incoming tanks. They opened up fire at around 100 yards, and it was not until Sato closed in at 30 yards that a round made a direct hit right on Sato's machine gun. Two more 30-pound shells tore into Sato's tank, and it stopped in its tracks. A Japanese soldier who was at the scene recounted, Sato died in an officer-like manner, with his hand on the hilt of his service sword. Colonel Seiji visited the tank's rack and recounted this. Sato had collapsed beside his gun like a dish of ame. For those who don't know, ame is like a glutinous jelly substance. Harrison said of the entire experience running from the tanks in his unpublished history of the 11th Division, that he could not conceal his admiration for the men who almost killed him and Mustaf Galam, quoting,
Heedless of danger and their isolation, they had shattered the division. They had captured the slim bridge by their reckless and gallant determination. About the same time Watanabe's tanks reached the Slim River Road Bridge, British General Sir Archibald Waffle had arrived in Singapore on a Catalina flying boat from Ceylon. Waffle was a veteran of the Second Boer War, where he served as a second lieutenant in the Black Watch. Then he would serve in World War I as part of the general staff to the British Expeditionary Force. Soon he found himself appointed as a brigade major of the 9th and was wounded in the Second Battle of Ypres in 1915, losing his left eye and earning a military cross. He would continue to serve in France and then in Egypt, rising through the ranks rather quickly. When World War II broke out, Wavell was a general officer commanding-in-chief of the Middle East Command. For the first few months of the war, in June of 1940, he had to face the Italians in the north and East Africa, who greatly outnumbered his own forces. Wavell learnt there a policy called flexible containment, that is, to buy time to build up adequate forces to take on offensives. His forces were pushed back in Libra, Eritrea, and Ethiopia, but by December he mounted successful offensives into Libya, such as Operation Compass and later in Eutria, in Ethiopia, by January of 1941. Things would turn sour, however, when the German Africa Corps showed up to reinforce the Italians in North Africa. By the end of April 1941, the British were pushed all the way back to the Egyptian border, leaving Tobruk under siege. In June, Wavell sent a force to invade Syria and Lebanon, However, the Vichy French forces there proved to be able to put up a determined defense. Churchill would end up relieving Wavell after the failure of the operations that began in mid-June. Despite Wavell's lack of success against him, Erwin Rommel, the Desert Fox, rated Wavell quite highly. Wavell's replacement, Auchinlach, wrote of him, quote, in no sense do I wish to infer that I found an unsatisfactory situation on my arrival. Far from it. Not only was I greatly impressed by the solid foundations laid by my predecessor, but I was also able the better to appreciate the vastness of the problems with which he had been confronted and the greatness of his achievements. In a command in which some 40 different languages are spoken by the British and Allied forces. Thus, Wavell was shifted to India, where he was made commander in chief, but to his rather misfortune, he was soon placed in charge of an undermanned theater which became a war zone when Japan declared war on December of 1941. Wavell was made commander in chief of Abdicom that stands for American, British, Dutch, Australian Command. And back on January the 1st, during the first talks of the Arcadia Conference, the Allied governments had agreed to form a joint command and an integrated staff for the entire Pacific War. It would be responsible for the defense of a vast area that ranged from Burma to northwestern Australia and for the maintenance of the Malay Barrier a line that ran down the Malayan Peninsula 
to the southernmost islands of the Dutch East Indies. Wavel was supreme commander, with the Dutch general Hein de Porten as commander of the land forces, British Air Marshal Sir Richard Pierce as the commander of the air forces, and American Admiral Thomas Hart as commander of the naval forces. So on January the 7th, as Paris's men were being overrun at the Slim River, Wavel landed in Singapore and assumed control over the British Far East Command. Wavell heard reports of the 11th Division's misfortunes, and an Australian Hudson with the strongest escort available carried him north to the 3rd Indian Corps HQ at Kuala Lumpur, where motor transport awaited him. He traveled to Rasa, a hamlet some 30 or so miles north of Kuala Lumpur, where he discovered Brigadiers Stewart and Selby, and he recalled, I have never seen two men look so tired. At the end of the day, Stuart's 12th Brigade could muster no more than 430 officers and men, about a sixth of its strength, only around 200 armed men or so. Selby's 28th Brigade were a bit better off at 750, but just about everyone was in a state of absolute exhaustion. Wavell was shocked by this and thought serious errors had been made. This became his first indication of a loss in confidence for the command of Percival. It was the loss of men and equipment that hurt the most, especially all the 25-pound artillery. 48 hours before the Japanese had arrived at Slim River Road Bridge, Percival had already decided to abandon central Malaya. This left the extensive road networks in the heavily populated west coast states of Selangor, Nigli Simbalan, and Malacca to the use of Yamashta, who would use them to great effect to outflank the defenders. Percival had decided to fall back some 140 miles, abandoning Kuala Lumpur, Port Swettenham, and Malacca, all jewels in the crown of British Malaya. Now a new defensive line would have to be established in northern Johor. Wavell quickly realized that Johor was going to be vital ground, and they needed to gain enough time for the arrival of reinforcements. He then appointed the 8th Australian Division to defend the northwestern Johor sector, while the Indian forces were placed in the defense of southern and northeastern Johor. This meant that for the first time in the entire campaign, the British were going to attempt to buy some real time instead of just throwing their forces into the meat grinder over and over again. Now we're just going to take a quick detour to look at the British-held side of Borneo, which was seeing some of its final resistance. Since the war had been unleashed, Japanese forces had landed at Kuching, Sarawak, and Jolo, between Mindanao and Borneo in the Sulu Sea. Landings continued in Malaya, staged from French Indochina through the Kra Ismus of Siam, or across the Gulf of Siam. The great naval base at Singapore, the Gibraltar of the East, which was supposed to stand as a bulwark against Japanese advances on the islands south of Malaya, had lost command of the sea and air, yielding to the Japanese. Now Singapore was isolated, 
and neutralized, its considerable defending forces were in no position to thwart Japanese troop convoys, which could now bypass Singapore and hit locations such as Dutch Borneo. The Battle of Borneo had begun with Japanese landings on December the 16th. Major General Kawaguchi took Miri and Syria, and after being made aware that there were no roads linking up the major settlements of Sarawak, well, he organized further landings at key points along the west coast, including Jesselton, Sandakan, and Kuching. As Brooke Popham would later say, The only place which it was decided to hold was Kuching. The reason for this being not only that there was a modern airfield at this location, but that its occupation by the enemy might give access to the Dutch airfields in Borneo. Furthermore, it would also give the enemy access to Singapore. The 15th Punjab of the 2nd Battalion was the only real significant British military force on Borneo, but the Allied troops were forced to give up their defense of the Kuching airfield by Christmas Day. On December the 28th, upon returning back to Miri from the Battle of Kuching, General Kawaguchi ordered the battalion-strong Watanabe force to advance and then capture Brunei, with the objective of acquiring small boats for an attack on North Borneo. Three days later, the Watanabe force carried out their orders, but found all the big ships in Brunei's harbor had already been destroyed by the British defenders. This forced Kawaguchi to employ only small fishing boats for his next attacks. The Japanese invaded the island of Labuan, on January the 1st, and the British resident Hugh Humphrey was taken prisoner. Humphrey later complained that his punishment for destroying all of the oil on the island was, quote, I was repeatedly hit by a Japanese officer with his sword, in its scabbard, mind you, and exhibited for 24 hours in the public in an improvised cage like an animal. Kawaguchi decided to launch his main attack on North Borneo, so on January the 8th, two infantry platoons occupied the towns of Jesselton and Bufa, while the Watanabe force took Sandakan, which held the seat of government for all of North Borneo. It was there they had managed to rescue some 600 interned Japanese citizens. Many Dutch colonials believed that the Japanese would never reach the East Indies, let alone Java. One Elizabeth van Kappen, the daughter of a Dutch businessman in Sumbor Suwu near Malang, recalled the usual jokes that went around regarding the Japanese military at the beginning of the war, stating, quote, The Japanese while shooting would always miss because they were all slit-eyed or the Japanese planes were made out of meat tin cans, or the Japanese couldn't run fast enough because of their crooked legs, and so on. You know, I have to admit, after reading so many books about the racial attitudes at the time, I've never heard an account about the Japanese having crooked legs. That's a, that's a weird one. One of the main targets for the Japanese was the oil-rich island of Tarakan, off the East Borneo coast. Kawaguchi's central force assaulted it on January the 11th, and within only 24 hours, the Dutch garrison there was completely overrun. 
During the first engagement, a group of 30 soldiers from the Royal Netherlands East Indies Army were bayoneted for refusing to give directions to the main town. At the Battle of Tarakan, some 870 Dutch were taken prisoners of war. On the same day, a force of 2,500 Japanese Marines, supported by 500 paratroopers, landed on Manado, on the northern part of the Celebes Island, with the aim of grabbing control of the mineral-rich eastern part of the Dutch East Indies. Cutting thrusts were made by the 21st Air Flotilla that were deployed at Davao, on the southern Philippine islands of Mindanao. And after some brutal fighting at the airport, the Dutch commander ordered his forces to retreat into the jungles to carry on with guerrilla warfare that would continue until late February. Many prisoners of war would be executed for these actions. At this point, North Borneo was pretty much secured, and the Japanese had completed their primary objectives by mid-January. Governor Robert Smith finally surrendered on January the 19th. The Watanabe force captured Tawu on January the 24th and Lahand Datu on January the 31st, freeing up a further 1,500 interned Japanese citizens there. The invasion of the East Indies was significant and fully reflected the importance of Dutch oil to the Japanese future conduct of war. And in the next episode, I will be going much more into depth about the Tarakan and Manado invasions. I would like to take this time to remind you all that this podcast is only made possible through the efforts of Kings and Generals over at YouTube. So please, go subscribe to Kings and Generals over at YouTube and continue to help us produce this content by checking out www.patreon.com slash kingsandgenerals. And if after all that you are still hungry for some history content, why don't you give my personal channel a look over at the Pacific War Channel at YouTube. It would mean a lot to me. Next week, we're going to be coming right back to continue with the Japanese attacks on the Dutch East Indies. We also are going to continue to see how the battling bastards of Bataan will fare with their Abakate Malbin lines of defense. And we're going to have to see developing things going on with Yamashita's forces marching towards the British defenses now at Johor. Join us next time for the battle for the Dutch East Indies.